Glory to God and Salamat Po, Pastor Henji. Yes, I'm excited. Good things happening in the house of the Lord. Good things happening in the heart of the Lord. Good things happening in the hand of the Lord. Are you in the hand of the Lord today? You're in his hands. You're in his heart. Welcome. You're in his house. If you're streaming with us, his house reaches to you because it's not just this place. It's him. It's his presence. The presence of the Lord is with us today. Do you believe that? I invite you and encourage you to believe it. You say, I believe it. Good. Believe it all the more. Find, better yet, let him find any place in you that resists that truth, that fears it or doubts it or disregards it, and let him invade that place in you right now with the awareness of his presence. Jesus is real and really here. Do you have questions for Jesus today? Call on him. He's here to answer. You have needs. And you think, what could Jesus do with the problems in my life? He's here today, right wherever you are, right here in this sanctuary, right here in your heart and mind. If you are willing to receive the Savior today, he is here. And what can he not do? All power and authority has been given to him. And do you know what? He wants to give it to you. The keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. Jesus says, here's the keys to my car, to my house, to my office, to my vault, to my heart, to my power. Now, anything that you want to do that aligns with who I am and what I'm all about, you have the power to do it in me, says Jesus Christ. Believe that. I want to pray with you now as we come to our message this morning in the Samuel story. It's part two of looking at the fall of King Saul. I want to pray with you in the attitude and the spirit of expectation and belief and faith that we've just described. You at home, you have an added challenge. You may think that you have an added convenience, and it may, may very well be true that you're able to stream with us where you are. And all of us in the room have also experienced, I think, at some time or another, that there is a blessing in that access. But sometimes one of the challenges is there can be distractions at home. There can be distractions here in the sanctuary, too. But you know, one of the benefits of being in the sanctuary together face to face is that it helps all of us to focus. So many times during that COVID pause that we all worked our way through by God's grace, there were so many times where I came to preach from my home or from the office or even from this pulpit to an empty room or so it seemed. And it took so much uh, faith that God could give me. It wasn't there in me. It had to come from God to actually feel like I'm talking to someone and not just to myself. 
I remember the days when I would be streaming out on that broadcast and somebody would text me, you went off five minutes ago, and here I am just talking <laughs> to no one. Can you imagine what a fool I felt in those moments? I'm just blathering away. <laughs> Hazel said, I heard it. Even the times when I was in my office and there was no one else there, the Lord told me, well, you heard it, Courtney. And you might need it more than anyone else, so at least you heard it. There's many times during the week when I'm at home preaching alone. Hazel knows that. She comes home and I'm talking to myself. Because I preach and preach and preach before I come to the pulpit to preach. Because it's really the Lord that I'm hearing. It's the Lord that I'm listening for, looking for, leaning on. And that's what I want to pray with you today. So for you that are streaming somewhere else or watching a recording, will you do this for your sake, for your benefit, but also to honor the Lord and ready yourself to receive from him? Cut out any distraction for this moment. Give your full attention to God because I assure you his full attention is on you at all times. His eye never turns off of you. His heart always focused toward you. And so today, Lord, as we pray, we focus our hearts on you, Jesus, here in the room with us. Suddenly it dawns on us. There's so much to you, so much we don't know, so many ways we fail, so many ways we falter, so many fears we face, so much foolishness in our past, so much frustration that seems to surround us and pervade us. And Jesus, we need you. I'm even praying, Lord, with that one out there who isn't so sure that you're there, who maybe even feels indicted today because my words call them to an awareness that they don't really know or they can't really believe that you are really there. And I ask, Jesus, that you would touch them right now through these words. Touch them, that they would feel it, know it, a physical, palpable sensation of you reaching out and connecting with them and saying, I am here. I care. I can help you. All over the room, all through the partnership of prayer, the Spirit is speaking to people's hearts. best part of the sermon today is what you hear the spirit of the one and only God say to you in your inner heart. Thank you, Lord, that you never say anything that doesn't align with your word and doesn't align us with your will if we will willingly allow for it. We allow for it, Lord. Let your will be done and your kingdom come through your word today. Amen. I came into my office yesterday morning in preparation for a ministry team meeting. I had a few minutes to gather some things. And uh, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I like to gather in the morning is a cup of coffee. 
I'd had one, I needed another, or at least I wanted another. I have a Keurig in my office, you know, one of those little one cup maker deals. It's convenient. And I don't keep a lot of water in it because I don't necessarily use it every day, but I usually keep enough that I can brew a couple of cups. And uh, I was surprised that the well was a little lower than I realized, so I added a bit of water, enough to make at least one more cup of, of coffee. And I grabbed one of the mugs. Now, I have a tree of mugs on my desk, and uh, they're a set. But the, the tree, a uh, hanger, has um, allotment for one more mug than the set has. I think they were bought separately. Um, or maybe I broke one or something. I don't remember. But in any case, I have an extra mug. Somebody gave me one. But it's a different size. And every now and then, I forget. Now, those of you who are in the meeting, you're thinking, I heard this. And you did. You're going to hear it again. And, uh, and it'll bless you double-fold, I'm sure, because the Lord has something to share with us. So I grabbed the wrong mug. That's the long and the short of the start of the story. I grabbed a mug that wasn't part of the set, and I kind of forgot that. Every now and then I do that, because every now and then I'm distracted, and I'm thinking about other things, and I can do some dumb things. And the, the dumb thing I did this time was I selected the size of cup that would fit every mug but that one. So I'm gathering my things and printing some things, and I run to grab the cup, and I realize I can't even move this cup because it is literally just about to overflow. It's only the surface pressure. You can actually see the coffee standing on top of the rim. You know what I mean? There's a little, what do they call that? I don't think it's meniscus, but it's something like that, that where just the surface tension of the liquid is holding it there, a little dome, like a muffin of coffee. And I thought, good grief. I really am about to make a mess here, because I'm not even going to be able to pick up the coffee and transfer it to another cup without it spilling all over. And I look at the top of the machine, and it's blinking a message to me. And the message says, add water. And I see that the tank is almost empty. And I thought, add water. No, I don't need any more coffee. It's about to overflow anyway. Now, I know it sounds funny and silly, but that kind of thing can irritate me. I can get grumpy about stuff like that. You know, you just think, oh, why did I do that? That was so stupid. And this is such an annoyance. And I don't have time for this right now. And I'm about to have this meeting. But <laughs> you know, one benefit that I have of being a pastor that might be a challenge for you if you, know, you work, I don't know, in a, an accounting office or in a hospital or in a school is that when you're at work, you're not constantly reminded that you're supposed to be a spiritually person, spiritual person. But I am. And I'm thinking, I'm going into this meeting, and I shouldn't go into this meeting with the kind of attitude that is grumbling and grumpy over a cup of coffee, right? So here's one thing that I've learned that I try and do. And I don't do it so well, but I try and do it. I try to approach those moments and say, Lord, give me the right attitude in this moment. And I try and look at it as, Lord, what are you saying? Now, the risk of talking about a moment like this and saying, I asked the Lord, what does this mean? Suggest that I'm somehow sitting there at any given moment and, you know, a fly buzzes by or a breeze moves the blinds or a car honks three blocks down and I say, Lord, what does it mean? And I'm acting as though every moment is so laden with meaning that I just have to interpret the spiritual signs constantly. And I don't mean to suggest some kind of superstitious approach that that might indicate to you. But I do think it is meaningful to go back to what I said just a few moments ago, to what we considered, which is God's watching all the time. And you know, there's never a moment, I don't think there's a single moment from the beginning of creation to now to the end of time that God looks at and he says, that second doesn't matter. 
That, that moment doesn't matter. I don't think you can ever come to God and say, what's going on right now that you want me to see or to know or to hear from you where God says, uh, well, nothing. This one, just move on. This is just, it's just a minute. But we treat so many moments like that, don't we? We let so many minutes of our lives just wash away. You might be thinking, yeah, how many minutes is the sermon going to wash away of my life? But the question is, how closely are we listening? Because when we consider that God is in every moment, then any time that we might have the inclination to say, well, Lord, what do I need to learn here? Or what do you have to show me here? Is a moment in which you are saying, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And if you have the heart of a servant and the ears to hear, what you discover is God is speaking. So here I am with the cup, but I stupidly overflowed. And I said, you know, I come to the Lord and I say, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, Courtney, don't, don't do stuff without thinking about it. Don't choose the wrong cup the next time. And then that still small voice, not audible, but that sense in my spirit that so recognizably Jesus said to me, you didn't choose the wrong cup. You had the wrong expectation. And suddenly my mind went to Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. Now, if I'd started with that, we all would have gotten a chuckle about it. But actually, what God was saying to me in that moment wasn't just for me. It's for our church, and it's for his kingdom. And what the Lord was saying to me is, it's not too much. I want to add more. Add more water. Because it isn't the size of the cup that determines the outpour. It's the source of the blessing. It's the source of the Spirit. It's God himself. There's no cup on earth that can hold all that he's pouring out. The point is, he wants to overflow. From that smaller cup, I filled a bigger cup. Because it wasn't the smaller cup that was the source. It was the supply. And the supplier was saying, add more water. Now, in the scriptures, water is a metaphor for the word. And the scriptures tell us that the word of God, the Bible, is water to wash us clean. Another metaphor is that it's bread to feed our souls. Another metaphor is that it is seed that will produce growth and multiplied harvest. You can choose whichever metaphor you want. They're all reflecting the same reality, but all of them fall short. They're all just cups. They're cups that are carrying a little bit of the totality of what God is saying. And what God is saying is, I will give you all of myself. All flesh can receive my spirit. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In these days, PCF, and people of the, of the body of Christ, because this is a message that is intended for us, but open to all because it is intended for all as well. All who would call upon the name of the Lord, all who would recognize their commitment and connection to the body of Christ. What the Lord is saying is, I want to overflow your cup, but add more of the word into your life so that more of what God has to say to you can be heard by you. What has this got to do with Saul? A lot. Because what we see in Saul is someone who has received that outpour of God 
and taken the, the bit that he had, which was just the beginning, and utilized it as though it were all, as though it were a tool, as though God were a tool to be used by Saul to accomplish his own ends. And in doing this, Saul cuts himself off from the flow of the Lord. And you're going to see that he gets to a place where even when he's inquiring of God, even when he's saying, what should I do and where should we go, he's not hearing from the Lord. And the reason he's not hearing from the Lord is not because God is not interested in helping, but because Saul is not really dedicated to obeying. A requisite to confidently hear from the Lord. Now, God can make himself heard anytime he wants. So I'm not saying God is dependent upon you in order for you to hear him. But if you want to live in such a way that you can be confident that you are willing and available to hear whenever he speaks, then a requisite of that is that you are also prepared to commit to do what he tells you to do. And actually what we discover what I discover and you discover, and we've talked about it before, and we have to talk about it again because it's at the heart of our challenge in this life is that even when we want to obey, we fail to obey so many times. But as we've talked about, in the, in the, in the uh, comparison of Saul and later on King David, talk about the youngest of the family not being heard, right? Like Joseph that we talked about in PSOM last week, like David that we'll be looking at in our sermon series next year, by God's grace. Sometimes the person that is least expected to be heard or to be uh, um, admired in the family is the one that God elevates. In any case, if you compare Saul and David, one thing that we see is they both falter and fail at times. But David has a heart after God, whereas Saul is more dedicated to himself. So, there's a little bit of Saul in us all. Turn to the person next to you and say, there's a little bit of Saul in us all. It's good to find out where it is and let the Lord weed it out because the way of Saul leads to a fall. Last week, we looked at the impatience of Saul. God had appointed this man from the tribe of Benjamin, this broad-shouldered, tall, and, and uh, you know, sort of awesomely inspiring, athletic warrior figure. He had been appointed by God, anointed by God, by God's spirit, the spirit even of prophecy, to lead the people. And the purpose was that he would lead people with purity of spirit, with integrity of heart, but the problem was that Saul increasingly had his heart turned away from God and towards his own ends. And even though Saul would have said, and does say many times, well, what I'm trying to do is what God wants, the problem is that Saul doesn't approach that question with the sense of, I may be wrong and you may be right, but rather with a sense of certainty that the way I want it to be done is the way that it should be done. So he increasingly uses his royal position to fulfill his own agenda and to operate in his office according to his own terms. That's a problem. We could call that pride. And pride, as you know, goes before a fall. We looked at 1 Samuel 13. We're in the middle of a three-part conclusion to this series that's going to give us a little pause in the book of Samuel until next year. And in the first of these three chapters, in essentially the middle of the book, which was uh, 13, 
we saw that Saul had a fear that his own army was going to scatter from him. Remember that they are gathered against this oppressive enemy, the Philistines, that have encampments all around Israel and that increasingly come into the territories of Israel and take what they want and wreak havoc. And so it's an oppressive force by which they are surrounded. It's a more powerful people with more sophisticated military. Saul has reason to be afraid of these enemies. And as he is waiting, Saul, in the place where he is supposed to wait, for the priest and prophet Samuel to come to him and offer the sacrifice to the Lord that is a part of the right worship that God had ordained in order to evidence that this king and this army and this whole nation was willing to do whatever God told them to do and ready to wait for whatever God wanted to do. That's what Saul violated because he was afraid that the enemies were going to take advantage of them because Samuel hadn't shown up by the seventh day at the beginning. And he was afraid that his army was going to dissipate. That all of his soldiers were going to run away. Now, here's the connect point to you and I. What is it that makes you anxious? The deadline on an assignment in school or work? The bottom line of your budget or bank account? The thin line between love and hate that seems to be rearing its head in your uh, marriage or with your kids? Is it a health issue? Is it something else that is making you afraid that if you don't take action the way that it seems necessary to you to do, that you might lose out on something, right? FOMO is fomenting in your heart, fear of missing out, fear of missing the mark, fear of making the wrong choice, fear of not making the right choice. Fear of other people, what they're going to think, what they're going to say, what they're going to do. If I don't do this before they do that, then it doesn't matter what God thinks, I will have missed out. Those are the same fears. That's what's in Saul's heart. So if that's what you and I have bubbling over in all our heart, then there's a little bit of Saul in us all. So, God, so Saul says, God's going to do something. Let me help him. You know, maybe we don't know what happened to Samuel, but I'll go ahead and offer the sacrifice myself. It's good. I want to worship the Lord. But you know, it isn't saying that you want to worship the Lord that really pleases the Lord. It's doing what God says to you to do. The Lord says, what I'm looking for when you say worship is obedience. When you say you love me, what I'm looking for you to do is believe me and do what I say. And if I say wait, I'm looking for you to wait. And even if it looks like all hell is breaking loose around you, wait. And in the words of Paul, having done all, stand and trust in the Lord. Instead, Saul tries to force God's hand. He offers the sacrifice himself. He violates the command of God. And Samuel shows up right after he does it and says to Saul, what have you done? You've done a foolish thing. Has God ever said to you, you've done a foolish thing? I won't ask for a show of hands. I'll just raise mine because he said it to me more than he said it to you. And I'll tell you what, if God has never said to you, you've done a foolish thing, you don't know God. Because I guarantee you, you've done a foolish thing somewhere in the line of life. Many. Many. <laughs> Amen. Dalaga. For all of us. So Samuel says to Saul, you've made a grievous mistake. And what Samuel sees, what the Lord sees is, it isn't just a mistake. It's turned in the wrong direction. 
Saul has turned away from God. And even though he's apologetic about it, he's not repentant about it. He says, sorry, 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 but his sorries are sandwiches of excuses. Sorry, but I had to because. Sorry, but after all, this is what. Sorry, but, sorry, but, sorry, but. And you know what God wants is just for you to say, sorry. No excuse. No defense. That's David. That's David falling before the Lord after his sin and just saying, there is no excuse. I plead and appeal for your mercy without any defense. But you know, you don't have to raise a defense because God raised the cross and raised the Christ. Jesus is your defense. So you don't need to make excuses, but you do need to make confession. Oh, that's good. I'm going to say that again. You and I don't need to make excuses, and we shouldn't, but we do need to make confession. You know what some of us need is a good, bold, just out there confession session with a friend in the Lord that you trust. Uh, almost certainly that's going to be someone of, of, of your gender. If you're a man, it should be another man. If you're a woman, it's another woman. Why do I say that? Because if a man and a woman are sharing that kind of, unless it's your spouse, it's probably too intimate for a brother and sister in the Lord to be doing quite like that. Now, there are some exceptions to that, um, obviously. And there could be a counselor. There could be a pastoral setting. But I'm simply saying to you, there should be someone in your life who knows the Lord, knows the word, who prays with you, who knows your life that you could go to and say, I need to get some things off my chest. Amen. And it's got to be just between you and me. Amen. You know, you say, well, all I need to do is confess it to the Lord. That's true. And in fact, that's pivotal. But sometimes what the Lord wants is for us to share that with someone else because sometimes what we're holding on to are the things that other people will help us let go of in the Lord. They'll be able to point it out. If instead we double down and we live in our confusion, then we are inviting a kind of blindness. You remember how we've been talking about in this book of, of 1 Samuel, but really in this Bible in general, there's a kind of a metaphor that goes on that suggests that people who aren't open to hearing from the Lord don't have their eyes open to seeing in the Lord. In other words, the more that you and I resist the truth of God, the more we're blind to all truth in our world. And everything that we see, we misinterpret because we're not seeing it clearly. So we need the clarity of the word and the clarity of the Lord to really see. Otherwise, we risk spiritual blindness. Saul, through his impatience, through his fear and foolishness and frustration, has actually initiated a process by which his impatience will lead to imprudence. Now, it's a year of patience for us, right? And so we have to consider the alternative of patience, the, the absence of patience, is impatience. And impatience isn't a problem simply because it's sort of unpleasant. You know, it's not just a problem because it's, it's on the teacher's naughty list. Impatient children are bad, so don't be impatient. Well. That may very well be, but there's bad things that come out of impatience. And one of them is imprudence. I mean, you can see it on the freeway. People get impatient with another car and decide to do something absolutely crazy 
What's road rage? It's impatience that has given birth to imprudence. And it might be better to say that it's brought about the death of imprudence because sadly, it brings about the death of people. Saul's impatience has brought about this lack of wisdom, this lack of proper caution, this rashness and agitation. He's being motivated by fear and frustration, and good judgment is being clouded in his mind. The effects of his fear are producing, as fear always will, the result of foolishness. The fruit of the Spirit is patience and wisdom. The fruit of impatience is foolishness and imprudence. And in this way, Saul becomes a kind of a curse to his people rather than a blessing because he puts his people at risk. The army comes to greater risk that he's leading because of this. How can you and I avoid that kind of imprudence in our lives? How can we avoid it in ourselves? We can ask God to grant us patience. We can say to God, we want to hear from you, and what we need from you is wisdom. You know that David's son the third king of Israel, when God came to him in the night in a dream or vision and said to him, basically along the lines of what I was saying to you earlier, the keys of the kingdom, here you are on the throne. I've placed you on your father's throne, the throne of David, which is my throne, says the Lord, and you can ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. And God said, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give you that and everything else too. Like Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. We can find the seeds of wisdom and patience in the living word of God. Add water and let that seed grow. And we can implant those seeds in ourselves by regularly studying and applying the biblical words in our lives. If you're just getting, imagine if the only meal you had was Sunday morning and you came and had one of those communion wafers. Now that's a blessed uh, reminder of the host. But imagine that was the only sustenance you had all week was a cracker that size. You'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? And a cup of water the size of one of those communion cups. And I said to you, well, hey, you're getting fed. You're getting watered. Try that with one of your house plants. That's the way my plants look sometimes. <laughs> Your soul is worth a lot more than a plant. And it needs a lot more than just a Sunday morning message or a Wednesday evening prayer meeting. You need the word every day. Better than that, you can have the word every day and more of the word. Oh, you have not because you read not, because you study not. No wonder that we don't believe. How can we believe unless we hear? And how can we hear unless we are in it, to read it, to know it, to receive it? Most of all, when we read it and we study it, like James said, then you got to act on it. Otherwise, you're just looking in a mirror and walking away and forgetting who you are. What do I look like? So patiently and consistently obey what God says. These are the lessons for us. Ask God for patience and wisdom. Look into the word and get the word into you regularly, daily, and then patiently and consistently obey. And because you and I are going to be challenged in that, ask for God's help. Help me to obey you. Just ask that right now. Let's have a moment of prayer. Lord, help us to obey you. We come to you with, with earnest hearts right now. You know, Lord, that 
we struggle. But Lord, right now, see that, that seed in our heart that says, I really do want to be what you want me to be. I really do want to know who you are. I want to know more of you. I want to be more obedient. I want to be more faithful. I want to be more patient. I want to be less carnal. So Lord, help me, help me. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help rid me of my unbelief and help multiply my belief, my faith, your faith in us. Amen? Pray that way because there's power in that. Do you think God doesn't answer that prayer? He answers it. You say, well, why doesn't God just do it anyway? Because part of the answer to the prayer is you wanting him to do it. The more that you want him to do it, the more that you will want him to do it. And the more that you do want him to do it, the more that you will see that he has done it, is doing it, and will do it again. Because that's who he is. Hallelujah. So, Saul's fall. We learned from chapter 13, don't try to rush God. Amen. Don't try and force your will over his. Amen. Sounds simple, is really hard. God is patient. But you and I, we also need to work at it. Not because our work achieves what God wants to do, but because God's work in us is our willingness to commit to that. that you know, that's part of the reason why we're doing this membership uh, renewal in this season. It's not just because we want to update our database, although that's really important. We also want to update our own commitment to the Lord and to, to this uh, expression of his body. Listen, PCF is one of millions and millions of churches around the world. It's one of billions and billions of people in the body of Christ. We are not saying that that, that the membership here is somehow better than membership in any other church, but what we are saying is this is a kingdom outpost. And part of being in the body of Christ is having a place where you are committed to the body of Christ. You're committed to give your money. You're committed to give your time. You're committed to serve, not to just come and receive teaching, but to give it also, to be a volunteer in the Sunday school, to be a student in a ministry class, to be a volunteer. Yesterday in our missions team, uh, ministry team, we talked about missions going to the prisons, going to the convalescent hospitals. You say, well, I've heard that, and I've heard that, and I've heard that. Yeah, well, part of the problem is the challenge that we've been through in the last seasons, but also part of it is, where are the people to do it? Is it you? Ask the Lord, where can I serve people in your name, Lord? Where can I serve more people more consistently in your name? Everywhere that you're involved, work, school, relationship, home, there are people that you can be serving in the name of the Lord. But don't just stop at where you are. Ask for that increase of influence. You want to be an influencer? Be an influencer for the kingdom, but you've got to be under the influence of God in order to do that. So, seek God's will, trust his timing, and get over trying to manipulate him. Get over trying to get him to agree to your view of things and start submitting yourself to his view of things and have this attitude in you that was in Christ to live in submission and service with a heart that is honest and helpful. I said last week that the antithesis of these kinds of attitudes is at the core of what we see in Saul, fear, foolishness, and frustration. And I mentioned how these three chapters in 1 Samuel kind of center on those aspects, 
We see fear foremost in chapter 13. Today in chapter 14, we see the foolishness of Saul. Next week, we'll talk about the, uh, uh, the ultimate frustration uh, that flourishes in this particular sequence of the scriptures. But all three of these are also in display in each chapter. Each chapter we see, and you can even see a sort of structure in the chapter, I would suggest, of Saul's fear leading to foolishness and ultimately producing a kind of frustration. I want to talk with you about this chapter and look at it. And I realize it's a lot of verses, but basically what I want to do is read it with you and let the chapter itself speak to you about these elements that we see evident in Saul and how they may be evident in you and I today in ways that God can help us to weed them out. So first we're going to look at the opening sequence of the 23 um, first verses of the chapter. Uh, Between a shining peak and a mountain of thorns, a mighty battle begins. It carries forward from that place to another place that is called the House of Vanity. And it uh, is the center of this passage of scripture. Finally, with enemies on every side, though the Lord's victory has been achieved in the immediate section of scripture that we're looking at, there's an ongoing frustration that Saul is living in. What do I mean by between the shining peak and the mountain of thorns? It's right here in the scripture. By the way, I had intended to largely summarize this chapter. And I wrote many different summaries over the week, trying to summarize it well one way or another. And I kept running up against a wall of just feeling like, that's not good, that's not good. I kept feeling like I'm missing something from the scripture. I'm missing something from the scripture. And yesterday, when my cup overflowed and my copy ran over and the Lord said to me, add more water, and I realized that was the word, it was like God is saying, just read the chapter. (laughs) Stop trying to squeeze it into something small because God wants to give you something bigger. He wants to give it all. So don't be overwhelmed that we're going to read through 54 verses or whatever it is, because we can do it. One day, Jonathan, this is the son of Saul, the prince of Israel at the time, says to his young armor bearer, this is not just a compatriot in the army. This is a dedicated body man, I think is what they call it in uh, modern parlance, you know, the bodyguards of celebrities and, uh, and uh, people in leadership and so forth. This is somebody who is there to give their life to protect the prince. They do carry the armaments. And remember, Saul and Jonathan are the only ones in this army that have a proper sword and have a proper spear and have the proper implements and armor of war. But they do have that. And so he has an armor bearer. Now, Jonathan says to this armor bearer, here we are. There's Philistines camped all around. We're prepared for battle, but the battle hasn't happened yet. The tension is mounting. But my dad is just sitting there. Saul was sitting on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. (laughs) So Saul is sitting and waiting. For what? We're not sure. He wasn't willing to wait on the Lord. He rushed things. It would seem that while Saul rushed, he lost courage. In his rash rushness to try and get the victory over the battle, he lost confidence in the Lord. It would seem that Saul's afraid. He's sitting there waiting for some kind of signal that there will be victory. And Jonathan says, what are we waiting for? Let's go over, you and I, just the two of us, we'll go over to the Philippine, Philippine, no, (laughs) 
Philistine outpost. Please take nothing from that. That was a slip of the tongue and nothing more. Let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he doesn't tell his dad, right? He's like, uh, we'll do it and we'll, we'll get permission later. You know, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. So Saul is sitting in the encampment. There's about 600 men with him. That's a far cry from what he had had. A lot of people have flown the scene. Remember what we looked at last week. A lot of people went hiding in caves and rocks because they're afraid. And other people just went back home. But Saul is there. And oh, look who's with him, Ahijah wearing the priestly ephod. The ephod is some kind of garment or accoutrement that was utilized by the priests in the ancient time. We don't know exactly what it was. We have ideas about it, but it seems to be something that they utilized not only to indicate that they were the priest of God, but also to help hear from God. It was a divination tool. But what matters about Ahijah is that he is the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, son of Eli the priest. In other words, he's the grandson of this line of unfaithful priests, Eli who was blind and blind to the things of the Lord, and the Lord said, I have rejected you. And they died in battle. And in fact, Ichabod, his very name means no glory. The glory's gone. So what has Saul done? God's glory has left him, and so he's grabbed the nearest available religious cipher. Well, how about you, Ahijah? You come and be priest to me. He's trying to fulfill the religious requirements without the spirit of God. Beware. This is bad. So, so Jonathan leaves and nobody knows it. Now, there's a pass that Jonathan is intending to take. He's going to cross through to reach the Philippine outpost. There's two cliffs. And on one cliff, back away from it, is the region in which Saul and his troops are encamped and waiting. On the other cliff, right at the edge of it, are the Philistine troops. And these cliffs have names. One of them is called Bozes, which means shining. And it actually comes from a Hebrew root word that referred to white linen. It can mean also slippery, probably in the sense of uh, the shimmering maybe of water on a surface or something like that. Uh, but it, it refers to something bright and shining. The other cliff is named Senna, thorny. It is from the same root word that describes the burning bush that Moses encounters the living God in, in Exodus chapter 3. In other words, there's this narrow passageway between brightness and thorns. And both of these terms, brightness and thorns, have a relationship to the way of the Lord. I can't help but sense a kind of an echo of that scriptural statement that says there's a narrow way, a narrow path, and not many find it. And maybe in part it's because not many people want to go down into the ravine. Not many people want to risk the thorns. If you're going to climb down one side, it's apparently slippery. If you're going to try and climb up the other side, it's thorny. And that's why nobody's crossing it. It's craggy and extremely steep, very narrow. And by the way, by the time they get to the bottom, though they will have been able to hide themselves coming down, just the two of them, you could never have an entire army come down that. Too many men wouldn't be able to manage it. Too many men would be too visible. There's no way that you could move a, uh, a large number of, of uh, armaments or men across that ravine. 
in the fast enough time to take your enemy by surprise. So it's a natural barrier that nobody is expecting anyone to cross. But just two men, they can be small and swift and quick and courageous, and they can hide in the rocks and under the thorns, and they can get their way to the bottom. But once you're in the bottom, you're dead visible, and they can see you. So what are you going to do? Jonathan says, we'll go down into this ravine. One cliff faces north, one faces south. We'll go there, and we'll let them see us at the bottom. After all, if God is with us, then who can stop us? If God is for us, as Paul says in Romans, who can be against us? Jonathan is saying it doesn't take numbers. There is something of the spirit and the heart of David in Jonathan. And in fact, we will see that Jonathan and David are alike to the almost same degree that, that David and Saul are different. And Jonathan here has a heart much like David will have when he goes into the valley of Elah and faces off against Goliath, which is, you may be a big, powerful enemy, but I've got a bigger, more powerful God. So Jonathan says, we don't need a lot of people. We just need the Lord. But he does say to his armor bearer, essentially, I need you. Are you with me? I can't do it alone. And the armor bearer says, do whatever, listen to the Hebrew, do whatever your heart inclines because my heart is with yours. That's the heart of the Lord to you. Jesus says, ask anything in my name and it will be done for you. You might think that the role here of Jesus is Jonathan the prince and the role in you and I is to be the armor bearer, but Jesus comes to you as your armor bearer and says, I am with you, I am for you and not against you. I know the plan. And it's a good one. It's a plan for victory. And the armor of the Lord is the breastplate of righteousness. It's the belt of truth. It's the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's the shield of faith. It's the sword of the spirit, the word. And Jesus says, I'm with you, not to do what you want, but to help you to do what God wants. So my heart is with you, says the armor bearer. Now, I did summarize here, full confession but it's pretty detailed. So Jonathan lays out the plan. They're going to scale down the near cliff side. At the bottom of the ravine, they're inevitably going to be visible to the enemy. If the enemy says to them, we're coming down to you, then they're in trouble. And they're not going to rush up the side because they've got a, it's apparently such a steep cliff that the enemy would be unlikely to suppose that the two men could even come up. And imagine, I don't know if you've ever seen The Guns of Navarone, an old movie from the early 60s, but there's a scene where these guys during World War II are trying to, to storm a cliff front, and it's in the middle of a storm. It's in the middle of rain, and they're having to mountain climb to get up to these strategic guns. And where they're at, it's not only difficult to get up, but anybody at the top that is your enemy could just shoot down, right? Now, I realize Philistines didn't have guns, but they have arrows. They have armor. They even have... Uh, stones that they could just pummel you with. So it's extremely dangerous. So if they see the army coming down at them, they're not going to be able to scale up. They're probably going to have to take their last stand at the bottom of the ravine or maybe try and retreat. But Jonathan says, if instead of doing that, which would be the really courageous thing on the part of the enemy, if instead they just say to us, come on up, then that will be the sign that we go on up because the Lord is with us and the Lord will give them into our hands. Imagine the courage of Jonathan. Yeah. Now, you might say it seems foolhardy, and there may be a case for that, but recognize this. Jonathan is listening and looking for the Lord. Saul is sitting under the pomegranate tree. 
So both of them show themselves to the Philistine outpost at the bottom of the ravine. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their rocks. They're crawling out of their hiding place. In a way, it's true, except that while other people were going into the rocks to hide, Jonathan and his armor bearer were crawling through the rocks to fight. So they say, hey, come on up to us. Oh, you want to you face off against us? Come on up. We'll teach you a lesson. We'll show you a thing or two. They're proud and arrogant, just like Goliath will be a Philistine himself. And so Jonathan says to the armor bearer, let's climb. Now, probably what happens is that these men, these Philistines, aren't able to see them because the rock face is so sheer that by the time they come in from the wall, they say to them, climb up here, but they're thinking they're never going to be able to get up here, but they can't see them, and up they come. In fact, we are told in the text that hand over hand, foot over foot, Jonathan and his man right behind him scale this cliff face. And as soon as they come over the, the crest of it, they begin to fight and prevail against the Philistines. In fact, in that first attack of just Jonathan and his armor bearer against all these men that are gathered there, 20 men fall in about 20 yards. We don't know precisely how big a half an acre is, but it could be as small as 15 or 20 yards. Every three feet, a man of the Philistines is going down while Jonathan and his armor bearer are fighting them because the Lord is with them. So panic strikes the entire Philistine army. Fear comes over them. In fact, it says the ground shook, probably because there was such a mobilization of the troops in kind of chaos that all of the movement of those feet and men and, and, and uh, weaponry creates a shaking in the ground. And we are told that it's a panic sent by God. In other words, God has struck fear into the heart of the enemy. And that's what the Lord does. He strikes fear into the heart of the spiritual enemy of your soul. Don't be afraid of Satan because God isn't. And if God is with you and for you, then Satan can't stand against you. It doesn't mean that he's not a real enemy, but it does mean that you don't have to hide if you're standing in the Lord. So now Saul's lookouts say, hey, something's going on. They're all over the place over there. What's happening? Their army is scattering. Remember that Saul's fear was, my army will scatter. And what is God showing? If you would but trust me, I would make the enemy scatter. If you are facing challenges to your health, challenges to your finance, challenges to your relationship, why don't you trust the Lord and let the Lord turn those challenges on Satan? Let Satan go bankrupt. Let Satan be sick. Let Satan be struck down. Let Satan's communications and relationships be broken. God is greater. But as long as you sit there worried about what God will do and thinking he's not going to do enough, he's not going to do it for me, then you're right in the palm of the enemy's hand. But you could be standing right in the target of the enemy and not be afraid if you know that your heart is for the Lord. So Saul says, who's missing? Who went over there? Who went over there without my permission? Take a toll. Take attendance. Roll call. And who doesn't show up? Jonathan and the armor bearer. Wah, wah, wah. It's your son, Saul. So Saul says to Ahijah, bring either the ark or the ephod. There's some discrepancy. The the Masoretic Hebrew text says the ark. The Septuagint Greek text says the ephod. The essence of it is Saul says to the priest, bring the the religious tools for us to communicate with God. i got to find out what to do. You say, oh, well, Saul's a good guy. He wants to know what to do. He wants to inquire of God. Yeah, but he's doing it all the wrong way, with the wrong guy, in the wrong spirit. And so... 
Saul is talking to the priest. What do we do? How are you going to help me? Wait, what do we do? The tumult in the Philistine camp gets so loud that while Ahijah is trying to do the divination to hear from God, Saul says, ah, stop it. We don't have time for that. It's fine. We can hear. They're, they're mobilizing. I can see what's happening. You see? Impatience. I don't need... Uh, we tried that. Okay, let's move forward. I know what's going on now. I can see. Imprudence. Saul and all his men assemble, and they go into the battle. They find the Philistines in total confusion. The Philistines are fighting each other. That's what the Lord will do to the enemy. You know, demonic powers are real. They're invisible, but they're active in our world. And they align to try and achieve the ends of the enemy against us, but they don't care about each other. You know what the devil doesn't have? Love. <laughs> Nothing is more powerful than love. Amen. There is not unity and harmony Amen. and communication in the forces of hell. They are chaotic. It's just like if you see a wicked empire where everybody's got their, their knives out and, and they're at each other's throats. That's the image of demonic power and that's what's going on among the Philistines. In fact, there were Hebrew mercenaries who had hired themselves out to fight with the Philistines because they figured, hey, we just go to the highest bidder and it looks like these guys are going to win anyway, so we'll fight for you. And then they look around and say, this is crazy. They're killing each other. We're out of here. We'll go back home. We'll fight with the, our fellow Hebrew people. And then... There are also those who had hidden in the hills. The Israelites who had gone hiding in the caves, and now they're coming out. Oh, wait a minute, the tide is turning. Oh, it's amazing how people come out of the woodwork when it becomes evident that God is on their side, right? So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. They had a victory, and it was because of God at work in Jonathan and his armor bearer. But the battle goes forward from that place, to a place called Beth-Avon, which means house of vanity. We talked about it last week. And it's also utilized symbolically in the scriptures, increasingly in the history that goes forward, as a symbol of idolatry because it was a center of idolatry. And even what Saul was trying to do there with uh, Ahijah was a kind of idolatrous approach to God, trying again to manipulate God through the utilization of religious ritual without the right heart. So the battle has moved on to this place that should make us aware that what's uh, in focus here is what's the right way to worship the Lord? What's the right way to follow the Lord? Where is trust in the Lord really evident? So the uh, Israelites are, are in distress in this day. It's a new day because Saul had made an oath. And Saul made this oath rashly and imprudently. He said, let there be a curse on anyone who eats food before evening comes before I have avenged myself on my enemies. He probably is trying to call for a fast. We're going to do this the spiritual way. You see that Saul is constantly, he's like Mr. Church. We're going to do it God's way. He's got all the lingo and language and all the accoutrements, but none of the heart. We're going to have a fast and curse be anyone who doesn't fast with us. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting, but the problem is that Saul didn't consult with the Lord. He just made an edict. Sometimes you may do this. I'm going to do this for the Lord, and I'm going to do that for the Lord. Okay, but did God ask you to do it? I mean, what do you think? That if you fast, you're going to change God's mind? Well, you say there's times in Scripture where people have that attitude. The only way that that attitude could be right is if what you're really looking for is, I want to know God's heart, and I want God to move my heart. 
But if you're trying to utilize things just to make a show of it in order to somehow manipulate, then there's a little Saul in us all. So none of the troops have eaten. This is crazy. They're hungry. They're weakened. The entire army goes into the woods. There's honey all over the place. Apparently, there are beehives here. There's honey on the ground. There's honey in the trees. There's honey oozing out. And Jonathan, who didn't know that Saul had made this edict and wasn't there to hear it personally, takes his staff and dips it into some honeycomb and gets that honey and the honeycomb itself, which is more than just honey. It's, it's actually you know, something substantial to be eaten. And he eats some of that. And the moment that he does, I love the idiom in, the, in Hebrew, his eyes brighten. It takes us back to this central metaphor. There's vision. There is insight. There's inspiration. He's strengthened. And it rallies his strength. But then one of the soldiers says, Jonathan, no! Ah, I can't believe you did that. Your father said there would be a curse on anyone who eats food today. And Jonathan says, my father was a fool. Why would my father do that? He made trouble for the whole country. Look at how much brighter my countenance is. Look at how much stronger I am from just a little bit of food. It would have been better for all of us if the men had eaten some of the plunder that they took today. Then wouldn't we have had a greater victory? Now, they had struck down Philistines, but they were exhausted. They took a bunch of plunder, including animals, and they ate them out of their exhaustion. And then someone comes to Saul and says, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat. And it hasn't been cooked. They're eating it raw. There's blood in it. This goes against uh, the, the counsels of the Lord. So Saul is upset. You've broken faith. Roll a large stone over here. Make an altar. Again, Saul is going to fix it. I'll make a sacrifice here. And this is going to solve everything. But once again, it's Saul just trying to control everything and trying to look really righteous without having the real concern. So he brings an ox, he slaughters it. This is the first time we are told that Saul had done something like this. So what we see is Saul just doubling down on his own pride and determination to do things his way. So now then Saul says, okay, let's go down. Let's pursue the Philistines by night. We'll plunder them all night long. We won't leave one of them alive. And everybody says, it sounds good to us, Do that, that seems right. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. Now look what happens here. So Saul asks God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Notice that the priest, and at least he is fulfilling his job there, he's saying, hey, wait a minute, let's talk to God. <laughs> you, just, you just made the sacrifice and you're ready to go. And is that ever you and I? We're like, okay, I, made, I, mean, I said my prayer and I'm ready to go. But did you listen for God? Did you actually wait a moment to say, well, God, what do you think? Okay, Saul says, okay, God, what do you think? Shall we go down? Shall we pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into our hands? Listen, not just shall we go, but will you give us the victory? What if God said, yeah, go, but I won't give you the victory? No, 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 wait a minute. Will you, will you give us victory? Then maybe we'll go. But God did not answer him that day. Not because God doesn't want to speak, but because Saul wasn't really listening. He wasn't even really asking. And I got to say something kind of hard here. Sometimes you and I are saying, God's not speaking, God's not speaking. And I just want to tell you, yes, he is. You're not listening. Because you're so fixated on what you want to hear, the way that you want to hear it, 
And you want to know in advance, well, am I going to win? Forget whether you win or lose. Get close to God and just hear whatever he has to say with a heart that is ready to do it. Now, Saul looks at this and says, we're not hearing anything from God. Somebody sinned. And of course, he doesn't look at himself. Hey, I had that oath. Who broke the oath? Somebody ate. Somebody ate and sinned. I'll tell you whoever it was, I'm going to put them to death. I'm going to solve this problem again. My own rash, imprudent way. Nobody says anything. Saul says, I don't care if it was even Jonathan, my own son. So he goes in front of them with Jonathan there, prays to the Lord and says, why haven't you answered me? Is the fault in me or my son, Jonathan? Respond with the Urim. Again, this is a divination device that they use to make a determination. Who's being selected here, like casting lots? And they cast the lots, and everybody is cleared except for Saul and Jonathan. And then they cast the lots between Saul and Jonathan, and the lot says, it's Jonathan. Then Saul says to him, tell me what you have done. It's sort of similar to Samuel coming to Saul and saying, what have you done? And Jonathan says, I tasted a little honey just at the end of my staff. And now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. It's sort of like that judge that we studied last year. You remember Jephthah? Who made a rash vow to the Lord about whoever came out the door of his house, and it was his own daughter. And Jephthah somehow thinks that by keeping to such a foolish oath, he's pleasing God. And here Saul seems to think, well, if I keep this oath, it'll show how righteous I am. But even his own men say, no, no, no. How could you put Jonathan to death? This whole victory was because of his courage and his leadership. He's brought about this deliverance of Israel. No, we won't let you do it. Even the men of Saul will not let him be so foolish as to do this. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. The army rallies around Jonathan. You're not going to kill him. We won't let you kill him. You're going to have to come through us if you're going to try and kill him. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. And then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines because he couldn't hear from the Lord, and they went back to their own land. You see, Saul is faltering into frustration. That's where the story for today ends, with enemies on every side. Saul is ruler over Israel. He's fought against enemies, but they still have enemies. They've had these victories, but they're still oppressed. Listen now, that's too many of us. You know the Lord. You know the love of the Lord. You've had victories of the Lord in your life, but you're surrounded by spiritual enemies that are oppressing you. And the problem is not because God is not strong enough, and the problem is not that the enemy is too great. The problem, dear friends, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves, to quote Shakespeare. The issue is in us. There's a little bit of Saul in us all. And it keeps us bound 
in the places of oppression. The reason why we are starting this spiritual gifts prayer group on Saturdays is that there are people that need to be set free. And it's all of us, but some of you really need a good old prayer of deliverance to set you free from bondage to Satan. You say, who do you have in mind? I have no idea. I just know there's more freedom in Christ than what we are experiencing. And if you know that too, then you're ready. You're ready to seek a greater level of freedom. I'll tell you that the Lord in this very weekend has given me a fresh sense of freedom and fresh deliverance in my soul. And it was just God doing it. But one thing that I've been reminded of is you've got to want him. I pray that you would have a great hunger for the holiness and purity of God that nothing else would satisfy you, that greater than Jonathan's hunger for the honey would be your hunger for the sweetness, the goodness, the holiness of God. And for that freedom, because his freedom is real. It is not a pretense. It is an offense, and he does deliver. He delivers. There are chronic health conditions that God would heal if you would come and pray for that healing. God will heal people in that prayer meeting. God will heal physical conditions, diabetes, cardiac problems, asthma. God will heal it. Come and be healed. Or do you want to remain surrounded by the enemies? There are people that will get financial freedom. There are people that will get freedom from depression, from delusion, homosexuality, and gender confusion. Get free of that nonsense. Get free of that confusion. You say, that's offensive to me. Get free of that offense. Be offended. Come and be freed. I don't care about your offense. I care about your freedom. People say, well, I wish I had more hunger for the Lord. Ask for it. Come and be prayed for that. People who have been abused for years, decades, you've been chained by what was done to you, and it was no fault of yours. And you understand that and you understand it, but you're still surrounded by that enemy. Get free from it. The movement of the Holy Spirit is the victory. So don't wait. What are you waiting for? Come to the Lord for freedom and fullness. Oh, I want to pray in the spirit. In the scriptures, when the Lord gives a word in the spiritual language, it is always an evidence of his presence. It is always an effect of glorifying him. And there is freedom from the enemy. You say, I don't understand that. Come to the spiritual gifts prayer group and learn about it. Don't ignore it. Do you think that because you don't understand it, it isn't real? What more to God is there that you and I don't understand? You and I have not begun to see the limits of all that God has in store for those who love him. I'm calling us all to come into the flow of the overflow of the Holy Spirit. And now is not a time to wait. Because there are enemies on every side. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I'm not talking about political factions or even ideologies. I'm talking about Satan. The spiritual works and forces of darkness are real. 
and there is no way to prevail against them except in the Spirit of God. But when you are in the Spirit of God, there is no way to fail. The chapter concludes by a discussion of the members of uh, Saul's court and family. We'll come to that at a later time. But look at the final verse. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Well, it's a good thing because that's how Saul ends up bringing David into his service. But it's the frustration of Saul. For all the victories that God grants him, Saul's never got the fig tree inside of him. Because he doesn't receive all that the Lord wants to give because he doesn't obey all that the Lord says to do. The Lord says, eagerly and earnestly desire the greater gifts. The Lord says, wait for the fullness of my spirit in order to be empowered to reach your neighborhood, your city, and the wide world. Lord, we come to you today asking for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Lord reminds me right now, somebody's saying, what is that word that you gave? It requires an interpretation. There is one. And the interpretation is this. Hear, you people of the Lord. Your God is real and your God is one. No enemy or weapon formed against him can prosper. No delusion, no deception, no division, no darkness, no demon of darkness or all those other things can possibly prevail against the one and only living God who is king of all. And Jesus Christ is his name. So come to me today, says the Lord Jesus, and receive your freedom. I want to ask the worship team to come forward. We're going to conclude this service, but I feel it must conclude with a kind of prayer. It must conclude with an invitation. And the invitation is not to come to the altar, but to bow yourself right where you are. If you're physically able, I would ask you, as the worship team leads us in a concluding song of worship, to bow where you are in your place, or you at home, wherever you may be streaming or watching a recording. Find a place where you can bow before the Lord. And if it's not physically possible for you, because of circumstance or because of your body, there's no judgment on that. But bow your heart before the Lord. And Lord, we ask for a fresh work in us today. We ask for a revitalization of our faith we ask for salvation for those who have not yet yielded to you, whether they are within the sound of my voice or they are those that are known to us that are praying, and we pray for them. We ask for that. We ask for that salvation. We ask for that renewal. We ask for that revival. We ask, Lord, for your holiness and righteousness. We ask, Lord, for your ongoing forgiveness and cleansing from our sins and deliverance from the demonic forces that would tend to oppress us or bind us or cast us into fear. We ask, Lord, that you would make us honest and open and available to you. And now, friends, I ask you, brothers and sisters, let your prayer be lifted to the Lord right now. In your own words, from your own heart, you make your prayer to him.